0: Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Over the past two decades, Japan has experienced slow economic growth, changed employment practices, population decline and aging society, and an increasingly multi-ethnic population resulting from migration. How these factors have influenced education will shape the society of the future. With me to discuss the Japanese schooling system is Kauri Okana, a professor of Asian Studies and Japanese at La Trobe University, and she's the author of the book Education and Social Justice in Japan, which is published by Rutledge and is the culmination of more than two decades of research. Thank you for joining me, Kauri. No problem. You went through the education system in Japan once upon a time uh, in Hiroshima, which I think your book said. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: uh, And you've spent your career researching the education system. So can you tell me a bit about it? Because I, I know how Australia's education system works. I imagine Japan's is very different. So tell me how it kind of works and what you've seen change during that time.
1: The Japanese schooling is somewhat different from here. The major difference is that the student have to sit for entrance examination externally exposed when they finish their compulsory education so there's a six years primary three years of middle school and kids go to the senior high school through the selection system Mm. so the differentiation of the kids takes place at the age of 15 to 16 depending on what kind of senior high school they go to it could be a vocational high school and people who go to vocational high school will not go to university. Or kids might go to academic high school. So it is a really a major point of differentiation. While in Australia, it's a six-year secondary school. So you don't have to go through this selection system until you go to VCE. So mm. that, I think, is a major difference. Yeah.
0: And is it is it a compulsory kind of step at that point in Japanese school systems that you go through that examination and then you go through to... Different schoolings?
1: No, no. The compulsory education uh, finishes at the end of year nine. Right. So kids don't have to go to the senior high school, but everyone does. Mm. So there is a, a hierarchy of senior high school. And depending on your academic achievement, you can choose to go to different senior high school. And this was described as a kind of examination hell. Mm. Uh, that kids have to work so hard by sacrificing their interest in sports activities. I would say that continued until the end of 1970s or mid-80s, and things have started having changed because of the different social changes that you just described. People started questioning, is this worthwhile? to sacrifice teenage, fun teenage years in order to prepare for this entrance examination when the economy is not growing, when kids are not sure whether they can get the kind of job that they aspire based on academic qualification that they might achieve. Because the economy was not growing. As you know, there was a recession Mm. and so on. And also the employment practice have changed where the percentage of non-regular contract or casual workforce increased. So when I was growing up, and I wouldn't say when, but many years (laughs) ago (laughs) in Hiroshima, uh, there was a certain kind of optimism that you work hard and then you will get the better life.
0: Mm. The
1: kids will uh, enjoy the better standard of living both materially, emotionally, psychologically. However, these have changed completely. So because of the changes that you mentioned, people have an ambivalence about schooling. Also, one of the things that emerged was that while when I was at school, the practice of schooling or a decision-making about what happens in school was highly centralized. It was decided by Ministry of Education in Tokyo.
0: Well, for the whole country? For the whole country. Okay. The
1: national, that is a national curriculum. Yeah. There's a, quite a detailed guidance coming from Tokyo. From Tokyo's perspective, in order to build poverty, stricken Japan from the end of the war, they want to make sure that the benefit of schooling will reach everyone across the country. Mm. And therefore, they wanted to have a control. And therefore, they dictated quite a detail. But in the last 20, 30 years, things have changed. And one of the major changes is that decision-making became more decentralized. The many major decisions are now made at the local government or local education board. The national government still send out the national curriculum guidelines and major policies, but how these broad policies and guidelines are interpreted, are left in the hands of local government and local institutions.
0: Okay, so, so how much diversity do you get in the school system then? If it's open to the local level about how those are interpreted and enacted, you could get very different school systems from one side of the country to the other.
1: Yeah, what they are taught within the school, yeah. for instance. Uh, school have a choice of the textbooks, for instance, that they can choose a textbook from about 24 or 25 commercially published and approved by the Ministry of Education. For instance, the school where academic achievement is not as vigorous as some other places, they might choose the kind of textbook which are more suited to the student clientele. Okay. There is also a curriculum where individual school can design and develop. For instance, if the school where there is a large number of migrant kids, they might decide it to teach Vietnamese, for instance, mm-hmm. instead of doing something else. In the fishing community, they might consider looking at the history of fishing of the local area. There is certainly diversity Okay. across the schools.
0: That's a good thing though, isn't it? Because you're getting education tailored to the need of your students.
1: I think it is yeah. a good thing. Decentralisation is a good thing. Although some critics argue that the government is trusting too much of the educational practitioners at the ground level because there is no monitoring system. Okay. There's no inspectors, so to speak. Yeah. So once teachers start teaching in a the classroom, there is no system of monitoring. Personally, I believe in professionalism of school teachers. I have researched a number of schools, including spending an entire year at two high schools. I believe in the uh, teachers' professionalism. They work hard, and I guess like teaching teachers elsewhere in the first world, they are not the best-paid people, mm-hmm. but they have uh, a sense of professionalism and a commitment to the well-being and healthy development of children. So where does the
0: concept of social justice come into the education system in Japan then? Because that's the whole uh, hook of your book, so to speak. (laughs) That's right, yeah. So what does that refer to and where does it come in?
1: I discuss social justice in two ways. And it's in relation to different social groups, race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, disability. Mm -hmm. But I tend to focus on the ethnicity and the race, and I must say the reason why I think I got interested in this topic was because of what I have experienced as a minority person in Australia. when I grew up in Japan I was a middle class person who went to university I wouldn't say I wasn't interested in but I didn't really see much of the marginalization that was taking place but I I have two kids here, born here, grew up. My husband is a Pakiha white Kiwi. Mm. They go to school. There's certainly uh, systemic racism. There is an unconscious bias taking place. And also in my workplace here, I am a person of color, female, no English-speaking background. And operating in this environment, as you can see, the representation of these groups are, are not equivalent okay. to that of the larger society. So having experienced schooling as a parent, and also an academic observing Australian schooling, you know, I really got interested in how the schooling is benefiting to kids of different social groups. Mm. And that's what I got interested. There are two aspects that I look at, the social justice in Japanese education. One is retention rate, you know, we evaluated in retention rate and academic score, academic achievement score of different social groups. That is a question of to what extent educational opportunities are given to kids of different social backgrounds. Mm. But we all know giving the opportunities to everyone equally doesn't lead to equal participation of so we look at to what extent kids of different social groups are participating in schooling. Is there any patterns of academic achievement depending on different social groups? So, and of course, the patterns are there that the kids from minority background may not perform as well as the dominant group. For instance, in relation to the indigenous Ainu people in Japan, the retention rate to the post-compulsory schooling there's no gap anymore between the indigenous Ainu and non-indigenous. But when it comes to the retention to university education, there's still 10% gap mm. in terms of going to university. So we can see these quantitative aspects in terms of retention rate, participation, academic score. So that's one aspect. This is about who gets how much of schooling with what consequences. But the second aspect is more complicated And this is where we question to what extent what the kids learn at school, both academically and through interacting with peers, is impartial to all social groups. That is to say that kids might be learning the colonial Japanese authorities version of Japanese history. They may be learning the dominant Japanese worldview to the detriment of the indigenous view, one migrant view, and so on. Okay, uh, right. a, hmm.
0: So there's two aspects of it there. But if you've got an education system that is leaving it to the local level, though, it would be a hard thing to make accountable.
1: I would say that by leaving it to the local level, it can become more inclusive. For instance, Japanese society become diverse, There's different kinds of migrants here. One of the major migrant group are the people from South America. They're the descendant of the Japanese migrant who left Japan in early 20th century to South America, Mm. now for fifth generation there. You know, remember there's a president, Fujimori, in Peru. He was one of those descendants of the Japanese migrant who went there. But anyway, during the labor shortage in 1980s, the vehicle manufacturing companies, Toyota, Isuzu, Matsuda, yeah. Honda, etc., cetera, lobbied the government to allow unskilled labor from outside because there's a labor shortage. The spoiled Japanese didn't want to work in the factory floor. They decided they change the immigration law to allow a descendant of Japanese migrant in South America to come and work in these vehicle manufacturing company. Mm. So in the area where the car manufacturing companies exist, like Toyota City, Aichi Prefecture, or Hiroshima City, there's a substantial number of kids of Latin American background who who don't speak Japanese language, while they might have a Japanese face, and Carlos Yamada, they're culturally, they're Catholic, very much South American. So, if the uh, curriculum development is based at the level of school or locality, teachers can tailor the curriculum and the classroom activities to this group of people mm. because they're the dominant force uh, rather than children of Chinese background, uh, which tend to concentrate in some part of the Osaka. Or elsewhere in other words at the local level they are more likely to be able to develop locally relevant programs to these diverse student cohort so in that sense it is not a bad idea
0: so this issue of immigration Mm. for Japan Japan's traditionally been a bit closed when it comes to inviting immigrants hasn't it But as it becomes more open, this is going to become more of an issue.
1: They do look at the uh, migrant societies such as Canada and Australia, which are considered to be very successful in integrating migrant population into the mainstream society. They originally initially come as a worker with working visa Mm. and then many of them stay on settle down and they become a migrant. But the government argued that it's not a migrant. They come here, they come to Japan as a worker and what they do for the rest of their life is up to them. And it's partly because of this the government doesn't have a national policy of multicultural education or migrant education. Mm. In Australia, nineteen seventies, they had a very clear guideline which in Australia is a a migrant society and therefore education for multicultural Australia. Japan doesn't have that. Ministry of Education doesn't have that national policy. And as I said earlier, and then leave these decisions and programs to the local level. Why is that so? Partly because, I think, the ruling party, conservative liberal democratic party, is such a broad church party. Mm. Catch all. Everyone is there, from pretty much left to the right. So it is quite hard to get the support of a group of influential MPs to accept the idea of multi-ethnic Japan. For them, it's a homogeneous Japan and they want it to be. So rather than lobbying around at the national government level, let's get the um, multicultural education policy. In a way, from the central government point of view, it's easier and more practical to leave it to the local government. So many of the local government have the policy of education for multicultural uh, symbiosis, they call it. In that sense, you know, the national government get the hook of it, and, and then the local government do their own thing. So it is quite different. But so far, that's working. But I don't know to what extent this can continue on, given these conservative group of influential MPs who oppose the idea of multi-ethnic Japan, mm. they can't be there forever. Okay. There's a generational change as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it sounds a bit like they might be ignoring a few very obvious problems that they can't ignore forever.
1: Yeah. And then as an interim policy, the central government leave everything about this to the local government, and the local government are doing a reasonable job. Yeah. And these workers tend to be young, like 20s and 30s, and they produce kids. and kids go to school, and the Japanese schools were not designed for children who don't speak Japanese. Yeah, They never had that until the beginning of 1990s when the immigration law changed. So that's the first time when the teachers suddenly realized, oh, there are the kids who don't speak Japanese, what do I do? Yeah, So they really have to create something bottom-up to manage everyday situation and then ask for money from the central government.
0: One part of your book examines compulsory lunches in Japan. I'm keen to know how they kind of make the decisions on what they are providing and the message that they're trying to put across because you hear of other compulsory lunch programs being related to nutrition and to correct diet and childhood obesity. And I get the impression that those aren't as huge a problem slash priority in Japan.
1: Well, the health professionals in Japan consider child overweight is a problem because the percentage of child obesity has increased compared with 30 years ago but if in comparison to other first-world countries the overweight rate of Japanese is the lowest by far
0: okay despite that compulsory lunches trying to put across healthy messages How, how do they work in Japan
1: well, the Kompassi Ranchi has been in school since the beginning of the post-war schooling. Mm. Because you remember that in Japan, all the cities are bombed. No food. Kids are starving. So they got free old flour and old milk powder from U.S. occupation force <laughs> to provide bread and milk for these kids. Yeah. So that's the beginning. And then as the Japanese society became more affluent, they have decided that the kids should have a healthy development. So compulsory School Lunch started. And it's now about 99% of primary school provide. The menu changes every day mm. and designed by qualified school nutrition teachers. There's a guidelines for this menu from the central government. Okay. Yeah, yeah. like calorie, protein, what have you. Yeah. This meal is cooked on the campus. Kids eat the school lunch in a normal homeroom classroom with the teacher. They have a bowl for rice and a dish of main meal of protein. There are some salad, and then there is a 250-mil carton of milk. And they eat together. They talk about what they're eating. There might be an announcement saying, do you see the spinach in your soup? This spinach comes from Mr. and Mrs. Yamada's farm. And then some of the kids, uh, like grade one or grade two kids, would have visited oh, nice. this farm. So, so they're trying to do many things here. They're trying to connect the kids yeah. to the food production process, yeah. not just a supermarket spinach, but they actually saw the spinach being grown by the local farmers. It's almost a lesson, it's an extra lesson. That's right, about the food production. Yeah. The other thing that's happening here is the primary agriculture and fishing industries are pushing this, because from their point of view, they want a school lunch to include as much locally produced product as possible.
0: That's just to help the local economies. Yeah, to help the
1: local economy and to encourage the kids' mothers to purchase locally produced products.
0: I I really like that fish that we had today for lunch, Mum. They got it from Mr. Yamata's fish shop.
1: Exactly. Because Japanese food are so expensive, locally produced food are more expensive, let's face it, than imported food. Mm. And so in so doing, these farmers and fishermen can advertise, I guess, try to do some effort towards purchasing of local products. And then they claim that this will contribute to increasing the food self-sufficient rate of Japan. Mm. Currently, I think it's like under 40%. And so compared with the normal diet that people have in the household, about 40% is the rate of using locally produced goods. But in a compulsive school lunch, they're instructed to buy as much local product as possible for their menu, like 75, 80 plus percent. It's much higher mm. than the normal cooking. Yeah, Parents pay for this school lunch, $2 per meal.
0: As in $2 Australian?
1: Yeah, $2 Australian.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: That's only for ingredient, and another $2 are paid by local government. If the child comes from so-called lower-income family, then they don't have to pay.
0: Yeah. That sounds like a great system.
1: I must say, when my kids went to primary school there for a year, went on the sabbatical, yeah. they loved it. There is an international menu as well, once a month. Pizza day? Stro- Pizza day, Italian, and then there is a talk about about Italy. Okay. Why Italians started making these. I remember there was a beef stroganoff, yeah. Russian meal, and then they talked about why this kind of meal was developed in Russia, I was asked to come up with the Australian menu. <laughs> what do I do? What, what did you do? <laughs> well, I thought about the fish and chips. Yeah. But fish and chips was already taken for UK version. British <laughs> yeah. So I
0: think that says everything you can about the Australian yeah. menu. Really. So I thought
1: about meat pie. <laughs> sure. But it was a bit too hard yeah. to make. That's then we didn't have Australian menu.
0: So how much variety is there? I, I gather just on the ingredient level, from one side of Japan to the other, you must get very diverse school Mm. lunches then.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Because the menu is designed by the individual nutrition school teacher.
0: And the availability of local produce as well, I guess. Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But then when I interviewed these school nutritionists, she said that local farmers co-op or local fishermen's co-op guaranteed supply. You know, if you give a menu on such and such a day, we want to have X, Y, Z. Yeah. They definitely have it ready. And then from the farmer's perspective, it's not a bad deal. No. Because you know the fixed huge amount was booked in already. So there is some mutual benefit to it. And then in return, the teachers can ask uh, a farmer's co-op or a fisherman's co-op members to contribute to education kids to visit there or inviting some of them to come and give a talk but it all depends on the school teachers and the school
0: so you've essentially been collecting data and observations on the japanese school system your entire career and you must have a, a valuable resource of data and observations there, all ready to use so so what are you doing with your current studies what direction are you taking all of this in
1: In studying Japanese education, I was looking at how the individual parent and kids make decisions about educational choices under the constraints of structural inequality made up of class, gender, what have you, what have you. And my current project benefits from this because I'm still looking at the decision-making by the working-class women. My current project that I'm writing on is a longitudinal panel study of women in Kobe. Mm. I've been studying them, guess what, in the last 30 years. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> they were in year 12. When I did the PhD field work for a year, Yeah. I was at the, at the school every day, looking at how they make decisions about jobs after school. Two years later, I think, I, I went back to chase them up, see what's happening. Yeah, it was fascinating to talk to them about their view of their employment, school, relationships, marriage, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I decided to interview them every time I returned to Japan. Wow! Every couple of years.
0: So you've kept this up?
1: Yeah, I kept them. Yeah, I had a hundred kids for the original project, but I've been tracing about twenty. Girls, yeah, girls only. They're turning 50 this year,
0: and you're still in touch with all of them, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that must be a, a kind of a fascinating look across their lives, very really. interesting. It's yeah. like
1: that's in, in a BBC's, uh, yeah, it's Michael, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's uh,
0: the first thing that came to mind. You, yeah. You've apted them,
1: so. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I really had a good time interviewing them. It's more like a conversation turn up, have lunch together or dinner together, yeah. And what have you been up to since I last saw you? Yeah so i have all these uh, recorded interviews i did have a book out from year 12 i had another book out when they are in 20s so now i thought i would concentrate on when they are in 30s and then next one in 40s and then i might be tired.
0: kari <laughs> <laughs> Okana, thank you very much for your time today
1: my pleasure thank you for having me
0: you've been listening to asia rising the podcast of la trobe asia if you'd like to follow this podcast, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review, they are always very appreciated. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter, we are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.